Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Perhaps it's a question that we ask each other all the time. Certainly it's a standard greeting here in America, which is where I am right now. The question is, how are you doing? Which I suppose rather obviously is not too dissimilar from our rather grander sounding British equivalent, how do you do? It's a pleasant way of breaking the ice when you meet someone for the first time, socially distant, of course. The reality is that when we say, how are you doing? We often don't really want to know. And if you doubt that, try responding in earnest when you're next asked that question. How do you do? Well, thanks for asking. Not too bad. I did have a bit of a squiffy tummy on Tuesday. It calmed down after I took a bit of acid. And I've got a bit of a recurring problem with an ingrowing toenail, actually. Thanks for asking. At this point, the person who asked the question has fallen asleep or has fled screaming. Too often, we live in a world not just of social distance, but relational distance and downright unreality. I discovered that after a church service when a lady came up to me and smilingly thanked me for the sermon. Thanks so much, Jeff, she said. It was a breath of fresh air. I was grateful, encouraged, but then troubled as I wondered, if it was a breath of fresh air, that sermon, what is the air that she's living in, breathing, for most of the time, fumes of unreality in the church. You see, we follow the one who declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And that means that we should be able to be real, rather than just sharing victorious headlines, but not actually filling people in with the small print of our struggles. Getting real, it's absolutely vital. This is Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio, Getting Real. The service was over, and I was enjoying the warm afterglow chatter over a cup of tea. The man approached me, a broad smile on his face, but a slightly nervous look clouding his eyes. I need to ask you a question, if I may, he ventured. I nodded my willingness to be so quizzed. In these moments of after-service encounters, you never quite know what's going to be on the agenda in a conversation. He looked around furtively, as if he was about to confess that he had taken part in the great train robbery or was an undercover mass murderer. I braced myself. I've heard more than my fair share of lurid confessions. Throwing all caution to the winds, he launched into his question. Is it all right to say that I've got a headache? My brow wrinkled in confusion because this was not the anticipated whisper of shame and degradation. He just wanted to know if a dull pain in the brain was admissible. My reply was careful. Well, without sounding like Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. Do you have a headache? He looked down as if I'd inquired as to whether he was a carrier of a sexually transmitted disease. Yes, I do. Well, if that's the case, it's okay for you to say that you have a headache. By now, I had things figured out. I guess that this man was from one of those churches where Christians are not supposed to get sick, ever. Bouncing from one victorious mountaintop to another, these folks espouse the notion that Christians should never ever be without health or wealth. Of course, there is a rather pressing problem with all of this, and that is that Christians do get sick, In fact, a few of us have been known to die, rather like the rest of the human race. 
and our bank balances aren't always on and our bank balances aren't always in the bold black even if we give generously bless the missionaries and even send a few quid to that loud man on the tv who says that supporting his ministry is a surefire pathway to raking in cash for ourselves but the idea is that we're not supposed to admit that we are walking through the mire of these problems. To do so is an admission of failure, so they teach, and so we're supposed to make a positive confession and speak into being that which is not. Thus, any time we say that we are sick, we are speaking into reality our own sickness rather than speaking words of faith. Headaches are thus forbidden. Bad theology like this it's a harsh taskmaster. People have been known to die as a result of embracing this space cadet approach to life. But there is a less obvious yet sinister side to this idea of positive confession. When you live in a regime of required victory, unreality will not just be contained in the way you give a health report. Like a sparking car battery, unreality will jump across the terminals of our lives into all kinds of other areas where we are in need yet feeling the need to deny our difficulty. Our morality can come into this cloud of pretense. Feeling desperately unworthy about ourselves and knowing that we have all kinds of secret sins rattling around as the proverbial skeletons in the cupboard, we confess that all is well as if our saying so means that all is well. In effect, we lie and all in the cause of keeping up the facade of faith. Sins are thus buried deep undiscovered until a day of disaster or deliverance and light cascades into the dark dungeons of our own construction. But where God's reign, the kingdom is, there will be truth, even if the truth is uncomfortable and unpalatable. John the Baptist, that rather odd chap with strange fashion choices and stranger dietary habits, baptised the crowds in the wilderness building a motorway for the Messiah to travel on, and as he did, the people yelled out their sins just before they went underwater. Why? Well, the king was coming. It was time to get real. And fellowship is about reality and truth. Often, a time of fellowship is reduced to a quick handshake for 30 seconds during our services, where hymn singing is top priority. But actually, being together and sharing the good and bad bits of our lives is further down the food chain of priority in some churches. Walking in the light, to borrow John the Apostle's terminology, is the prerequisite of fellowship. That doesn't mean that every time someone asks us how we are, that we should produce those medical records, x-ray charts, and actually tell them. But it does mean that we ensure that there are those who truly know us and who have permission to help us know ourselves as we allow them to rebuke, comfort, challenge, and question us. Jesus sobbed in the faces of his friends and followers and said that he was totally overwhelmed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even the somewhat stoic Paul the Apostle informed the contentious Corinthians that he'd perhaps been tempted to suicide. We despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Hardly the stuff of grinning positive confession. The irony is that reality seems to be connected to healing. James exhorts those with headaches and more to call for the elders of the church and request prayer. But slap bang in the middle of all of that supernatural stuff, he tells us to confess our sins to each other as well. Perhaps we would see more miracles 
if we could be just a little more authentic and get real. So, yes, it's all right to have a headache, to be fearful, to be angry, and indeed experience a whole bunch of pains from which Christians are certainly not exempt. Perhaps if we could get a little bit more real with each other, we might find some of these things actually being shifted by heartfelt, faith-tinged and honest prayer. Get real. Getting real is what we're talking about tonight, so let me get real and tell you about the day I was mugged. It was a vicious attack, sudden and violent, that came not from a physical assailant, but from a thought that kicked its way into my head with a ferocity that was totally paralysing. It was a mental mugging. The thought formed itself inside my brain in a millisecond, whispering what I had always felt was unthinkable. I am weary with God, I thought. I am fed up with being a Christian. I was doing my best to mind my own business when the thought occurred. The scene of the attack was unusual. It happened in the quiet, air-conditioned sterility of an airport executive lounge. I'd settled myself into one of those little cubicles that busy people on the move use, where you can plug your computer in, make a dozen phone calls, or write a note to your children. I fired up my notebook and settled down to work on a sermon. The other cubicles were occupied with the hum of phone calls and deals being done and the fuzzy roar of modem shaking hands with the internet. You can tell how long ago this was. Remember dial-up networking? My attention was distracted by a conversation being held at high volume by a very smartly dressed chap in the next booth. Perfect creases in his trousers, shirt collar undone, an expensive silk tie loosened in the let's-get-down-to-business-then style, he looked every inch the bright young high-flyer. Apparently, he was closing an $8 million deal with a major corporation. He was excited, animated even, as he finalised the details. I peered at him discreetly. He can't have been more than 30, and here he was, wheeling and dealing and being a major player. He was significant and important and key and very, very necessary. And suddenly, I saw myself as totally the opposite of all of the above. I felt the crisis that comes when, as Christian leaders, we feel that we're condemned to always deal with the invisible, the intangible, the hereafter. All around me were people who were trading in very tangible, touchable commodities. And here was I, labouring again over a sermon that may make absolutely no difference whatsoever, delivered to people who may simply see the presentation as a mere snack in their regular diet of evangelical entertainment. I suddenly felt very small, surrounded as I was in this airport lounge loaded with overachievers. The apparent madness of a life lived for the invisible swept over me, followed quickly by a breaking wave of guilt that I should even think such a thought. And then the taste of that guilt itself tasted bitter. The crushing burden of always living under the shadow of oughts and shoulds and musts and coulds. I ought to pray more. I ought to be a better leader. I ought to see a miracle or two. I ought, I ought. It all pushed me under like a drowning man. I was gasping for breath. I was stunned that I could be mugged by these thoughts so very easily. I'd managed to keep afloat when hearing a friend had developed a brain tumour recently. 
Who was I to get angry when she stands resolutely in the arena of her pain, her husband bravely, unquestioningly at her side? What right does a spectator of their anguish have to get angry when they choose to trust? And I bobbed along hopefully when faced with some of the boring bits of Christian leadership, gossiping Christians that you may well spend eternity avoiding, evangelical politics and power plays, smilingly, greasily manoeuvred in the name of God. The cynicism that comes when you've been around Christian leadership for a while. It can all feel like the loss of innocence that might come to an avid theatre-goer who wanders backstage and is confronted by the scenery, the props, the instruments of the illusion. I also know how we leaders can engineer atmosphere or control people under the guise of exhortation, preach one thing and live another. I have seen that the lift in the worship was more the fruit of a well-timed key change than a heavenly visitation. And I'd hesitated a few times over the fence of familiarity, the challenge of holding on to fresh faith when God is your job, when you're paid to be pious. I'd negotiated my way through these thoughts with relative ease. And here I was being rugby tackled by an overheard conversation of a young go-getter. Never mind that he was dealing in the temporary and I in the everlasting. That was just my point. I wanted something very much in the here and now. I'm being really honest here, but out of that experience and out of being real about it with a few friends, I did learn that God does keep trekking with us even when we want to quit on him. And those struggles are not unusual or just reserved for little us. That weakness that we confess is often the landing strip that God looks for. When I finally got home, tiredness was a leaden thing that draped heavily over me. I arrived at our empty house, dumped my bags in the hallway, glared at the Everest of mail, a combination of bills and junk. Within 24 hours, I'd be climbing aboard another flight to speak about God to yet another group of hopeful people who anticipated some words from the creator of the universe through exhausted, irritable me. As a result of being there for that weekend, I can tell you that God really did help and some seriously significant things happened. I've been asked to talk about sex to a large youth celebration. Numbers of tearful young people, bruised by abuse, decided that enough was enough. It was time to blow the whistle. Just one of them experiencing that breakthrough, the shattering of that terrible secret, would have made the whole weekend worthwhile. And then, on the Sunday night, a young lady who hadn't passed through the doors of a church for five years sat through the last 20 minutes of my talk, her shoulders shaking gently with tears as God met her. Numbers of people, eyes bright with gratitude, whispered their thanks, affirming that God had helped them and had used my bleary-eyed preaching to do so. God seems to find weakness quite irresistible. When we're right at the end of our rope, often it's then that he seems to delight in showing up. So looking back, I've figured out that I'm not actually bored with God. Who is more incredible, more colourful, more surprising than him? No, I'm glad again that there is the sound of laughter at the heart of the universe, and I know that source. What a marvel that the creator is a friend. But I just think that being honest about the struggles of life and the life of faith is so important. One day, all of us will see the face of Jesus, 
Faith will be finished with the discarded antique. Questions will be silenced by the breathtaking, crystal clear view. In the meantime, there may well be days when we're too tired, too weary, and when a resolute, emotionless faithfulness is what is right. Meanwhile, there may well be days when we're just tired and weary, when we just have to be faithful regardless of what we feel. But when those days come, let's be real about them. We need to think carefully about who we can share our deepest struggles with. But let's be clear, we can be honest. See you next time. Lucas on Life.